Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, the history podcast from a Baptist perspective. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today our topic is going to be altar calls. It was either that or Kanye West's new album. So I figured I'd pick the less controversial one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, Are you a Kanye fan? Um, I listened to my first Kanye West song recently. Well, there you go. So That's how you know it's a success. I withhold my opinion of Kanye. That's not true. I just posted it on Facebook. Go to Facebook to, to get learn all the, the, the truth about Kanye. If you can filter through everybody else's, this may be one of the most talked about issues. Like on Facebook, across all my friends from various backgrounds. It touches a lot of different uh, yeah. independent circles. Yeah, I think every all of my friends have said something from every background culture, which is annoying, actually, because I don't like Kanye that much <laughs> to see him every other post. But anyway, we're going to talk about altar calls, specifically the history of them, and not whether they're right or wrong, which is a different podcast. We're not going to jump under that bus. <laughs> Though I've been talking to people, when you talk about the history of it, if they don't know the history, it can change their views on altar calls. There's maybe an assumption or specific teaching, I'm not exactly sure, that it's being taught in the Bible. And if you think it's in the Bible, you have a much different position on something than if you think it came later. So we're going to talk about that. Mark, did you grow up in a church that had altar calls? Yes. So did I. That's, that's weird how that ha- happened must be prevalent well to be exact it wasn't that big of a deal it wasn't all the time no it was about would you say every third service that's probably about right yeah which i think is was helpful but it wasn't required i would say every church except for this one that we are eldering has had has had altar calls trying to think that you've attended? That I've attended, yeah. I've been a member of it, at least. So, it's pretty common. So, most of the history is not Baptist on altar calls, but because it's so prevalent among Baptists. Up until, I would say, the 80s or 90s, it was almost universal among at least Southern Baptists, Independent Baptists, maybe Reformed Baptists, Free Will Baptists. Okay, so, talk about the history of it. Altar calls actually started... After the First Great Awakening. Which was when? The 1700s. So think before the Revolutionary War, leaders were Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley, uh, early 1700s. And all of these guys were pretty strong Calvinists, except for Wesley, uh, who was an Arminian. So they began First Great Awakening which lasted until, I'd say, the late... The Revolutionary War kind of killed it. And then in the 1800s, you had the Second Great Awakening. So the First Great Awakening, huge revival. Massive number of converts, conversions, church memberships, but no altar calls. So Jonathan Edwards never used an altar call. George Whitfield never used an altar call. Wesley never used it. Nobody used it. They would, in fact, uh, Whitfield said at one point that he refused to speculate on who was actually converted at his meetings and that he would wait until later fruit showed. So they didn't know of an altar call. Now, to be clear, and this is going to be an issue for a lot of people, there's a difference between the altar call and an invitation. 
invitation is a broad term. Invitation is just inviting someone to do something. It could be any sort of thing. So in the Bible, there are invitations to repent and believe. So Peter is a good example. Repent, be baptized, and believe. So you can offer invitations, and from what I can see in the scripture, it's pretty common and should be a part of all preaching that you invite people to do something. Repent of their sins, believe in, in Christ, and then sort of how to live the Christian life. And they should be invited on the spot to do it. So when you call them to a decision, that's different than an altar call, which is calling them to walk down to the front of the church or the meeting house or to a specific place in the meeting house. So an invitation could be, you need to, at this moment, trust Christ. An altar call would be, now step out of your seat and meet someone down here at the front or step into this room, some sort of physical reaction. Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, none of those guys did it. Nobody did it. In fact, for 1,600 years, no no one did altar calls. No one called for physical responses in that way. Uh, now, I'm sure that if you got all of history together, you could find one example of someone calling for a physical response. But the exception proves the rule. No one did it except for one random guy one time. But basically, the first Great Awakening, no altar calls. And up to that point, no altar calls. Plenty of invitations, plenty of even calls for immediate responses, but no physical come-to-the-front response. Uh, then you get into the late 1700s, and the Methodists are growing. So the Methodists used to be Anglicans. John Wesley was an Anglican, and then he started doing a sort of a different way with more formal, small groups, a, a methodology, hence Methodist. And they kind of broke away because the, Ang- the Anglican church was dead. So in an Anglican church— and this was a huge controversy in the 1600s, they would have an altar where they would give the Lord's Supper. And depending on which side of the Reformation you were on within the English church, how prominent that was or whatever. But they had it, and so they would invite people to come down to that area to be prayed with. And so they would say something like, come to the altar to be prayed over. So not exactly Baptist, right? Right. 1700s. Anglicans would invite people to the area of the church at the front where they would have what they call the altar where they would offer the Lord's Supper. So not Baptists at all. Baptists would not have a place like that. It would be sort of repulsive to Baptists to have an altar at the front of the auditorium where they would sacrifice something. But Anglicans kind of compromised with Catholics on that. Then the Methodists, who were kind of Anglican a little bit, at least they came from that tradition, started calling for people who were under conviction to come to the altar area for prayer. And that's kind of where you see it starting. Uh, they didn't call it an altar call. But those who were being called, uh, or those who were being convicted by the preaching, were called to stand by the altar, which was at the front of the auditorium, or the, the worship space, and then they would be prayed with. So that's the late 1700s. But it was only Methodists doing this, because they came from the Anglicans. Uh, then, so have you ever heard of Peter Cartwright? Mm-hmm. The guy who who's a circuit riding Methodist preacher. Mm-hmm. He was on a riverboat. Oh, right. And he threw out all the gamblers, right? <laughs> so he's a big guy. He was like 6'5 or something. And he was preaching. And the gamblers on the riverboat said, if you don't stop preaching, we're going to toss you overboard. And he was basically like, go ahead and try. Turns out he was bigger than all of them, and he tossed all of them overboard. So anyway, that's Peter Cartwright, the traveling Methodist evangelist. He talked about the altar call. That was like 1801. 
Uh, then what brings it to our world, because none of us are Methodists, is... You don't know. We could have a Methodist listener. Do we have a Methodist li- If you're a Methodist listener, good for you. Not really. I mean, good for you for crossing over and listening to some Baptists talk about it. You're welcome to be baptized <laughs> at any point in one of our churches. Well, we had a Methodist listener. We had a Methodist listener. <laughs> so the Methodists started the altar, the practice of calling people down to the front who are under conviction, but it was pretty small. Then it was Finney, Charles Finney, in the early 1800s, approximately 1820s, 1830s, who took it to everybody made it such a broad appeal that everybody in America was doing at that point. And that's where it kind of got to the Baptist. So it's interesting, the connection here. If you're a fan of American history, the 1820s, what's going on? Age of Jackson. Yeah, Jacksonian democracy. Which has a lot of resemblance to modern democracy. At least in its leaders. I've, I've, I've seen people make that connection. <laughs> yeah, you know, a populist leader. Pushing back against the elite, striving for the a fighter, not a writer, as they talk about Jackson. When he went up against Adams, Adams was intellectual and elitist, and Jackson was just the man of the people. Old Hickory. Old Hickory. So the 1800s saw a lot of economic problems. And so Jackson sort of led the populist movement of just regular people by the millions pushing back against the elites. And... That's a cultural movement. So it's, it's significant that Finney started the revival, Second Great Awakening, at the same time, which his appeal was just a popular appeal to everybody. There was no elitism. He talks about dressing, how you should dress. And people criticize him because of the new stuff he did. And he said, it's always been a problem. And he said, used to you had to dress a certain way to preach. And he goes, but now we just dress like regular people. And then he makes an interesting application. He says, in the past... He goes, I talked to an older preacher who said that he can never have someone in his pulpit who wore pants, that they would, that his people would see them as a fop (laughs) and that he must wear what they called short clothes, which were basically skinny jeans. (laughs) They were the knee breeches. Right. So pantaloons or pants were sort of loose pants and all respectable preachers wore knee breeches and that anyone who wore pants was seen as sort of, a, I guess, a dandy. And so no respectable preacher would ever wear clothes like that, which I thought was interesting given the context of uh, what older preachers say nowadays about how preachers should dress. Yeah. So maybe they go back and start wearing their knee breeches again, like conservative, like old pats. But it was more of an appeal to the regular people. Right. And so that was this whole whole dynamic. And so the, the altar call gets popularized by Finney. And he has what he calls new measures. And just the name of them gives you a hint of what they, that they're not been around for very long. And so Finney's saying, if we want revival, we have to have new measures to get revival. Now, Finney had a unique view on revival at that time. Now, they'd had, they had the Great Awakening, so they knew what revival was. But Finney had a view on revival that was a little more pragmatic. So here's a quote from him. He said, a, a revival is not a miracle nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means, as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. It's pretty spiritual, right? Yeah. So what he's saying is, if you want a revival, just do these things. The right application of means, and it's not a miracle, it'll happen. 
So if you believe that sort of anti-supernaturalistic view of revival, the next question would be, what are the means? Like, what do we need to do to produce this revival? And he said, I've got these measures that are new, and he called them the new measures. And he said, if you do these new measures, and he had a bunch of stuff, but these are the basic principles, you would produce a revival. It makes sense from a secular perspective. You know, if I wanted to be a good salesman, there would be certain methods that I would use that wouldn't require a miracle to be successful. Depends on what you mean by success, too. Right. So, yeah. yeah, So, if a revival is to be successful. Right. So, if the measures produce success, it also depends on how you measure success. Right. And if you measure success in a long, like Whitfield said, wait for the fruit, it's hard to know which measures worked. Yeah. If it takes a year to find out what happened in that year that worked. And so, you can see how these new measures are tied to immediate results. You can you can kind of have a, like with sales. Right. How do you know if the measure worked? Well, they bought something. So how do you know if your service style worked? Well, there's an immediate result. You call them to the front. So here's what he said about the uh, the new measures. In the present generation, this is, this is from his revive, revival lectures. In the present generation, many things have been introduced which have proven useful, but have been opposed on the grounds that they were innovations. So he's saying these are new things. These are innovations. He goes, I'm going to mark three of them. There are three things in particular which have chiefly attracted remark. Anxious meetings, protracted meetings, and the anxious seat. These are all opposed and are called new measures. Okay, so obviously there's an explanation. Right. <laughs> so here's how he describes anxious meetings. They were appointed for the purpose of holding personal conversations with anxious sinners and to adapt instruction to the case of individuals so as to lead them immediately to Christ. Which we've seen maybe caught soul winning or a personal worker yeah who would work with someone so it's the idea of a personal conversation with an anxious person who's under some sort of conviction to lead them immediately to christ then protracted meetings are just long meetings you start on monday and go to thursday which he says and i think he's right that's been a common thing for a long time that's not really a new thing but it was new at his it hadn't been done for like 100 years or something and then finally the Anxious seat, anxious bench, anxious seat. And that's what we would say was an altar call. He would say to the people in the service after he preached, if you're anxious, if you're convicted, come sit on this seat. This is where the anxious people sit, on this bench, on the seat down the front of the auditorium, where you can have a conversation with a worker. And so he would call people down to the front to respond to the gospel. So he responded to the gospel by coming down to the anxious seat where you could have a, a private conversation. Now, this is really interesting because this sort of call into the anxious seat is a new thing. It's an innovation. And, and then he says, this is a new measure. It's not been done before, but it's okay because it's got precedent. And he says, here's the precedent. The church has always felt it necessary to have something of the kind to answer this very purpose. In the days of the apostles, baptism answered this purpose. The gospel was preached to the people, and then all who were willing to be on the side of Christ were called on to be baptized. It held the precise place that the anxious seat does now, as a public manifestation of a determination to be a Christian. Which I thought that was fascinating. He's saying that the anxious seat, the altar call, is replacing baptism as a sign of public profession of faith. Now, as a Baptist, that should be a little jarring. Yeah. So even Finney who introduced the altar call, is saying, in the, God, in the New Testament, this was baptism. Now, as a New Testament Christian, modeled in the New Testament church, 
Why do we have altar calls when even Finney himself said baptism was the answer? So if you want to know if someone is converted, you call them to baptism. That's what Finney's saying, even while he's arguing for an anxious seat. Now, Finney wasn't a Baptist. He was first a Presbyterian and then a Congregationalist. So we shouldn't expect him to have consistent theology of baptism. But we should accept bab- expect Baptists to have it. So he was using the anxious seat as a way to know if someone has accepted the gospel. But he's admitting that in the New Testament, baptism was used for that purpose. So, so Finney's use of the altar call is based a lot on his theology, which, to say the least, is problematic. To put it in the worst way possible, is heretical, as it touches on the atonement and salvation. Now, when we say altar call before we get into theology, that term wasn't coined until the 1900s by Pentecostals and the holiness movement. But the concept was there. So why did Finney introduce this? Because he is the one who introduced it broadly. No one was doing it but a few Methodists and in a different sort of context. So he's the one who brought it in and spread it to everyone. Well, he had a few things about theology that he, he wrote quite a few books and was actually the president of a college. So he's very moralistic. He's very concerned with the moral fabric of America and of Christians. He was, he was actually anti-slavery. He was uh, very much into the temperance movement. He, in fact, he said if you didn't support temperance, you couldn't have a revival. So he tied, temp- he tied total abstinence from alcohol directly to revival. Well, it makes sense of the revivals that were revivalistic preachers like Billy Sunday. Yeah, so that's the tradition, which temperance wasn't a thing, or abstinence from alcohol wasn't really a big thing until the temperance movement in the 1800s. Fun fact, Baptists all drank before the temperance movement. And, and if you hosted a Baptist fellowship or a meeting for other pastors— if you didn't provide alcohol for everybody, you were uh, considered very inhospitable. If you want to read more about that, check out 50 Years with the Baptist by a man by the name of Benedict, I believe. You can email us for a further reference. Uh, but 1830s, 1820s, 1830s, temperance movement. So he was very concerned with moralism. So much so that it influences theology. He believed that your obedience was directly tied to your salvation. So here's a quote from him. So when he was asked the question, what do you do with a Christian who sins? He replies, whenever he sins, he must, for the time being, cease to be holy. This is self-evident. Whenever he sins, he must be condemned. He must incur incur the penalty of the law of God. The Christian, therefore, is justified no longer than he obeys. Let that sink in for a second. And must be condemned when he disobeys. In these respects, then, the sinning Christian and the unconverted sinner are upon precisely the same ground. Now, as a conservative Christian, Orthodox, I do not believe that's true. Our salvation is not dependent on our obedience, else none of us would be saved. Fortunately. Fortunately. But as a revivalistic preacher trying to get an altar call, trying to get people to come down to the front, you can see how that would tie in. to the sort of, have you sinned? And everyone would say, I have sinned. Come down to the front and repent of those sins. So he believed you could lose your salvation, which there are Christians who believe that, uh, but the Orthodox ones say it's when you lose faith. When you stop believing in Jesus, you'll lose your salvation, which I don't agree with, but it's at least consistent with the Bible, uh, the Bible idea of repent and believe to be saved. But he's saying when you cease to obey, you cease to be saved. Works-based salvation. That's works-based salvation. And uh, what does he say? The Christian, therefore, is justified no longer than he obeys. That's not healthy theology. That It's not justification by 
grace through faith. No, it's not. It's rejecting sola fide. It's rejecting the Reformation mm-hmm. principles, and it's rejecting the Bible. And I don't know how often he preached that, but that is heresy. I would hesitate to call him a heretic unless he's a heretic while he's saying it. <laughs> <laughs> he's being heretical. He's being heretical while he's saying that phrase. I mean, to be honest, we all say heretical things. Maybe not about justification, but about the Trinity or something. <laughs> Just, you know, I, every time somebody starts a sentence with the Trinity is like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's being a heretic here. And you can see how that sort of moralistic, constant reaffirmation of salvation fits very well into a constant altar call of repenting and believing coming forward. And very emotionally fraught. Like, people are constantly asking themselves, if I sin today, am mm-hmm. I saved? I should go forward and have a conversation. Then he had a problem uh, with the atonement. So he's just hitting all the good stuff. So we believe, as Bible-believing Orthodox Protestant, Baptist, whatever you want to call yourself, that the atonement covers our sin, that Jesus' death covers our sin, and that he died so that we wouldn't have to die, and that he took the penalty. And that's called penal substitutionary atonement. We talked about that, didn't we? That's come Last up before I came over. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Finney rejected that and held to what he called the moral influence, or what is called the moral influence theory. So he says, uh, the atonement would present to creatures the highest possible motives to virtue. Example is the highest moral influence that can be exerted. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he shows how much he loves us, how bad sin is, and shows us a moral example of what happens. If the benevolence manifested in the atonement does not subdue the selfishness of sinners, their case is hopeless. So the atonement was merely there to show us how good God is. And... It's a, just an example. He said, example is the highest moral influence. So that's a old theory. I mean, it's true. The cross, the atonement is an example. And it does exert influence on us. But that's all he, all it was. So he says, substitutionary atonement, which we believe Christ substituted himself for us, took the penalty, assumes that the atonement was a literal payment of a, of a debt. This is what Finney is saying, which is true. It's a literal payment of death, what we believe. Which we have seen does not consist with the nature of the atonement. He says it's it's foolish. So he's saying that Christ did not pay for our sins. Which, I mean, makes sense with what you quoted previously with... Obedience. Obedience being required. Right. What he's saying is the cross gives us such an example that we will want to obey. And therefore we will be saved. Or we'll stay saved at least. He says it's not a substitution for our sins. He says, as has already been said, there can be no justification in a legal sense, but upon the ground of universal, perfect, and uninterrupted obedience to law. That's true, but we're not the ones that are being... <laughs> right. So he's saying there can be no justification in a legal sense, uh, right, upon the, except for a perfect obedience. And then he says the doctrine of imputed righteousness... Or that Christ's obedience to the law was accounted as our obedience, substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm. He says, this doctrine is founded on a f- most false and nonsensical assumption. After all, Christ's righteousness could do no more than justify himself. It can never be imputed to us. That's heresy. That That's just heresy. Denying that Christ died for our sins, 
is heresy. And that wasn't just one quote in one place. That was in his systematic theology book, which is where he wants to lay out the clearest example. Now, maybe he never preached it. I mean, it would have been better if he preached it because it would have just been that one day <laughs> that's instead true. of writing it in a book. And that was later in his life. Mm-hmm. That was 1878, maybe. So he's saying Christ did not die for our sins. He only died as an example to us and that his obedience cannot be imputed to us. So we must have our own obedience. Now, he wasn't the greatest theologian, so there was some inconsistency. So, you, so I'm sure someone could find another example where he says the opposite. But he's pretty clear that he did not believe in the substitutionary atonement and that you better obey or you're going to hell. So he was a heretic, but that certainly preaches in a way that would make you want to obey. Mm-hmm. And certainly when w- w- the altar call, now I'm not equating his theology with the altar call. I can hear some people saying that. I'm saying that the altar call that he introduced worked well with his bad theology. I've been in plenty of churches that have good theology and have an altar call. So it's not the same, but we're talking about the origins of it. And what Finney was doing, the sort of the man who brought us the altar call, he believed that the moral behavior of people was the most important thing. And moral behavior was based not on the Holy Spirit working on you, but on your decisions. He said in his sermon, he said, the sinners is bound to change their heart. They're, they're required to change their own heart. So the Holy Spirit did not come to you and work on you, draw you, convict you. You have everything you need within you, and you just have to use it right. And the word we use for that is Pelagianism, yep. which is a heresy that was condemned a thousand years ago. It's not, not Arminianism. Finney was not an Arminian. He was a Pelagian. And he said, you have all the resources. You know, look within yourself, and you can find the will. You just need to make the right decisions. And if we can just get you into a place to make the right decision and sort of bring you to a moment to make it, then we can help you make the right decision. And that's what the altar call was for him. And there have been many non-Pelagians who used it, but I think had similar goals in mind. Of bringing, and that's what revivalism really is. It's this crisis moment to make a decision right now, come forward right now, and trust Christ. It was pretty popular. That was 1830s, but it only became more. D.L. Moody uses it. Billy Sunday uses it. Actually, Billy Sunday is the one who used the uh, hitting the sawdust trail. So they would have these big tent meetings. Well, this was back before modern conveniences, so it would get kind of dirty. So with sawdust, you just bring in fresh sawdust every night, replace it. But the most important thing was sawdust dampened the sound. So you can imagine a thousand people in a tent with no PA, and everyone's on, like, if it's a wooden floor, they didn't have carpet mm-hmm. back then. You can imagine how loud it would be. So sawdust made it basically noiseless. And so that was the main reason they would use it. And so when people came forward, they would walk down the path that was covering sawdust, so hitting the sawdust trail. And then they applied it to what lumberjacks would do. So lumberjacks would go in the woods to find the perfect tree, and they would carry a bag of sawdust, and they would leave a trail behind them so that when they wouldn't get lost, they could turn around and follow the sawdust trail back. So you've left God... But there's a sawdust trail, so you need to follow the sawdust trail back to God. You can see a great yeah, illustration. Great preaching. So now you've got a building with sawdust trail, and so you've got to hit the sawdust trail to go to four. But it was part of this altar call down to the front. And so that was in the 1900s. Now, it wasn't universal. Not everybody agreed with this. So the most prominent opponent would be Spurgeon. 
And Spurgeon said, this is superstition. <laughs> this is ritualism. This is wrong. He was very critical. He refused to do it himself. Now, he would have what he called an inquiry room where he would, people would inquire. But he said even that shouldn't be used all the time. It should be intentionally not used so that it wouldn't become mystical. And he would have a schedule where he would preach on Sunday, and then on Tuesday he would accept callers who would, who would concerned about their salvation. So he would wait till Tuesday. He died in 1892. So he was pretty evangelistic. Yeah. Maybe the greatest evangelist of his generation and never did an altar call. Very critical. And would wait till Tuesday to talk to converts. But then more recently, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored in London as well, so outside the influence of Finney's revivalism, he was very critical. And he gives a story. He said he would meet people at the back of the after the service at the back of the auditorium. And during the sermon, he sees this man who's visibly shaken by the sermon. He's crying. He's just overwhelmed by with emotions. And so when Lloyd-Jones goes to the back to greet him or to greet people, this man comes by and he sort of won't look at him. He's very emotionally distraught. And Lloyd-Jones is asking himself, he's like, should I say something to him? Should I you know, ask him to stay and talk? Which I think every pastor and Christians can understand that sentiment. Mm-hmm. Well, he decides not to. Lloyd-Jones was at a large church. He was, he, so he waited and he sees the guy the next day, 24 hours later. And the man says, hey, I was at church yesterday. And he said, I was really moved by the sermon. He said, if you had asked me to stay, I would have. And Lloyd-Jones says, well, let's talk about it now. And the man says, no, I'm not really, it's not, it's not the same, but yesterday I would have. And Lloyd-Jones says to me, he goes, well, any influence that, that won't last 24 hours is not from God. He goes, if what you had last night can't last till today, it's not real. And I think there's some wisdom there. If it's God who's drawing somebody and he can't do it one day later, I think we should hesitate to say that it's necessary. So these preachers were very much against it in the 18-1900s. And then it was the Pentecostals in the 1900s when they came around charismatics who ter- who actually coined the term altar call. And they were really big on sanctification and they believe you could lose your salvation. So they would actually print you you can find it in print first time like 1908. Altar call. So if you're using the term altar call, just know that it was Pentecostals and holiness groups that gave you that term. <laughs> Uh, so there's nothing un the Bible doesn't speak about altar calls I guess that's the big takeaway no one speaks about altar calls or coming to the front or making a, a physical sign to the to meet with someone until the late 1700s with Methodist and really early 1800s with Finney so if you still use an altar call which I'd say most of our listeners probably still have an altar call just know that it's a new measure that was introduced by Finney. And doesn't mean it's wrong, but Finney's a terrible example to follow. He's a heretic. Now, everyone else since then has been using it. Uh, Billy Graham is famous for it. Play just as I am. Mm-hmm. And then he would say, your friends are waiting for you here at the front. But it's heavily, uh, it, it's exclusively the revivalistic movement of America, which presses for emotional crisis moment decisions makes visible to make a visible response. Uh, whereas the Baptist tradition, all the way back to the New Testament, not the Baptist, go back to the New Testament, see episode, I don't know, three, Trail of Blood. 
we believe that baptism is the visible sign. If you want to, if you want to call someone to make a physical sign of conversion, you do what Peter did and what Paul did. Be baptized. And that's what the biblical model teaches. If you want to use the altar call as just a pragmatic, logistical way to get people from their seat to where they can speak with a pastor, I suppose there's nothing wrong with that. But it is an American thing, a modern American innovation. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can also join our Facebook group. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any app of your choice. And send in ideas for episodes that you'd be interested in.